Hey guys, Andrew here. Thank you for coming along on this podcast journey. Real quick, before we get started in this episode, I've got to ask you for a favor. If you would take a moment and give us a rating or a review wherever you find this podcast, that would be enormously helpful in us getting this word out and having a dialogue uh, about, about coaching inside the box with a greater number of people. Also, my challenge this week is share this podcast with one person. You may not know it, but we have a YouTube channel. And on our YouTube channel, we have a ton of really good content, small excerpts, maybe 45 seconds to a minute and a half long from our episodes, also the full-length podcast. We have a Twitter page that has a ton of these small, short, shareable content that you can hit retweet or like on your Twitter. And we have Facebook and Instagram also that you can share on your own social media platform. If you haven't found us on Facebook, search Coaching Inside the box. If you haven't found us on Twitter, search at coach in the box. If you haven't found us on Instagram, search coaching inside the box. And of course, YouTube search coaching inside the box. Thanks. And let's get started with the episode today. Coaching inside the box, a youth soccer coaching podcast, a Brit, a Brazilian and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box, Episode 8. We are so excited to have you today. Um, And today is a very appropriate day um, for us to be uh, coming back together. Because, as uh, uh, many of you probably know, Diego Maradona passed, or the news came out today. I don't know exactly when um, uh, he passed. And and Andy, I think you'd be... um, uh, uh, excited to, to offer some words related to Diego. Uh, Maradona was inspiration for me through you. You as a coach talked about him all the time. And my favorite skill has always been the, the, the Maradona turn. Um, would that be a fair introduction to, uh, to Maradona? Yeah, I don't, I don't think your introduction in any way, shape, form, or fashion does it justice, to be honest. You know, that's a very intense criticism of your ability to lead this meeting in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> but, but mediocrity is what I've become used to. Yeah, for, for most of my life, I think, mediocrity has been how I fit in. Yeah. You always told me just, just to try to fit in, Andrew. Quit, quit taking risks. Don't go for it. You're probably going to mess it up. So try not to. Well, you were the one player on my roster that I couldn't afford to let take risks. Fair. You know, everybody else was a good player. And, you know, there's some just every once in a while you get a kid that can't walk and chew gum. <laughs> 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 Fair, fair, fair. I do remember yeah. at 13 when you took us to, to, to Britain playing in Scotland and you screaming at me across the field, Andrew, you've gotten the ball six times in the first six minutes and you've lost it every time. Can no, you please actually, take somebody on and beat them? I've got a very vivid memory. You had the ball six times and you lost it ten times. I don't know how you did <laughs> <laughs> I can see that happening. <laughs> I think the sixth time I beat two guys on the dribble down the wing and dribbled out of But Diego Maradona, right? So uh, he's lived um, uh, a very full life um, uh, and uh, and is is so well known as being one of the legends of the game and his ability to to be a magician with the ball and to create. Um, I, I think served as inspiration for so many. Uh, for me, as being born in the '80s and playing for you, Andy, um, I only knew Maradona through you um, until later YouTube came around and I could go and, and search videos. But I remember you describing him and telling stories about his ability to create off the dribble. Um, ha, ha, what are some of your first memories of Maradona? When did he become uh, part of your ether? I- 1978, leading into the World Cup, you know, in in Argentina, you know, and you know he was, you know, cruelly left out last minute, but he was heavily touted as being the wonder kid, you know, and the thought was that he was going to make, you know, the the um, the squad that eventually won the World Cup, you know, and you know, and he got left behind, you know, and uh, uh, Mario Kempes was the superstar of that World Cup. You know, when Maradona could probably have played and helped them win the World Cup, you know, but, you know, he was, uh, now he was only a teenager, you know, and the feeling was from Cesar Minotti that he wasn't good enough, 
you know, to wasn't mature enough, you know, and probably Minotti was right because, you know, look at his career. It, it was blighted by moments of complete immaturity, you know, uh, amongst highlights of absolute genius and brilliance, you know, but he was one of these people that it was hard not to love the guy because he was so brilliant with the ball and he would do things that other people couldn't even fantasize about. Yeah. You know, he was that good. That was the gap. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, Philippe, we talk about great players all the time. Obviously, Maradona's before your time or my time, really. Um, but but Maradona's one of the few Argentinians I've heard you ever say something positive about. The only one. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, why is it's it like that English you say, versus Brazilians? Yeah. I mean, it's... It's even hard for me to talk about Maradona, to be honest, because he's an idol for me. Like he, and coming from a Brazilian, that shows how great he was, how big he was for the sport. Um, you know, he's not a conventional hero. He's a hero with a lot of flaws. So, it, which shows how human he is. Which we're all human. We all make mistakes, and we all fall into temptations here and there. And in his case, it w it was sad his involvement with drugs, even crime and, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, but, like, Maradona is is an inspiration for every kid that wants to be a great player. Uh, Ronaldinho openly talks about Maradona being his idol and his inspiration. And, I mean, look how, how Ronaldinho played. And that's from Diego Maradona. And I'm actually wearing this jersey, which is Boca Juniors for... You guys that don't know, uh, it's his team from his club from Argentina that he played for years. And after he has his success in Europe, he came back, and you know he he was just fantastic. Uh, the one thing that I can talk about Maradona that for me makes him different is his ability to step up in the tough moments. Uh, you know how how hard I am on Messi because I don't think he's a true captain for Argentina nor Barcelona. Um, I think in tough moments he failed many times and Maradona was the opposite right after the Falkland Island war he did what he did to England in the World Cup like that's gigantic he came to Napoli Napoli was a second division team a small team that was this whole conflict between the north and south of Italy and he turned it all upside down and he won back-to-back -back national championships for Napoli and in the World Cup in Italy the south of Italy was divided. Some people in the south were cheering for Maradona in the World Cup against Italy because of how big he was for people in Naples. So, I mean, it, he's just gigantic. And when we when a Brazilian talks about Pelé, the Brazilian will say Pelé is the greatest of all time on the pitch. But there are a lot of Brazilians that, although we all recognize that, I like Maradona more than I like Pelé just because of the style and everything he represents. And in Argentina, oh my God, they have a, a church for him. They have literally a religion for Maradona. That's unheard of in any other uh, area of life. There's a guy that because of his soccer abilities, he there are people that follow him as a religion. So, I mean, that's crazy, you know, and just a guy like him could accomplish something like that. So it's a sad day, but I'm glad we guys are here and we're gonna talk about soccer and use him as an inspiration. I couldn't agree more with with you know that perspective on Maradona because uh, I, I would you know hazard a guess, uh, but I don't think it's too much of a guess that the World Cup victory for Argentina meant more to the Argentinian people than losing the Falklands War, Las Mal Val Malvinas War. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know that is just incredible, and I wouldn't mind betting that a lot of English people would rather have won that World Cup game <laughs> than the Falklands <laughs> War. <laughs> I mean, you know, this was a, you know, a few islands in the South Atlantic that, you know, people hadn't even heard of from England until, many people hadn't heard of it until the war you so know, with Argentina. You and bring, and you it's bring not up that just a simple victory. It's a victory like the goal he scored against them, like dribbling, it's um, up until now known as the best goal in the history of World Cups. And you bring up this game, England. where were you, where, where did you watch that game? Let, let, me, let me just, you know, expand on that. Not only was the, the dribbling goal from, from his own half, you know, just absolutely devastating to England and just, um, uh, you know, the goal of the century. But the other goal was in your face, you know, to, to Great Britain, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it, more to England, you know, being, being the, the, the center of government. 
you know, and but that was that was an absolute slap in the teeth, you know, for you know the the British at the time, you know, how you know better to say, you know, hey, that's what you get from stealing our island, you know, and being up in the northern hemisphere and coming all the way down and claiming to own an island, you know, that's just off of the coast of Argentina, you know, so you know we have no problem, you know, handballing the ball into your net and rubbing your nose in it because. You stole our island, you know, and really you got absolutely no rights to it. Yeah, yeah. You know, which, you know, just logic tells you. you know. So we'll steal your game, which even though you invented it, you have no rights to it either. Yeah, you know, it was tit for tat, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> where were you when you watched that game? Were you were you stateside or were you back in England? Uh, you know, I've blanked it out over on purpose. Really? So I've, you know, I've tried <laughs> to forget about it. So I think it's worked because I can't remember. Uh, it's just like me with a 7-1. <laughs> no recollection at all. <laughs> Never watched the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what happened. <laughs> uh, well, um, well. So Maradona comes up oftentimes in our discussions, and he'll probably come up again later in this discussion as we talk about uh, coaching philosophy and, and and training kids and creating a culture and an environment that encourages players to be uh, more audacious, more brave, more creative, uh, a willingness to go for it. Um, uh, and and I really wanted to connect back to something you said about Maradona missing out on the 78 World Cup um, uh, because the coach said he lack of uh, maturity. I sometimes wonder if that lack of maturity the, the flaws that we are off or not we people often point out related to Maradona it's it's actually that lack of maturity that gave him the guts to to be what he was um, and um, and and I think I think that's notable and I think that that, that those flaws in personality and in uh, is in character um, is inherent in, in in the type of player he could have become exactly a hundred percent agree with that well, he was a genius at soccer, but, you know, he certainly was not a genius at life. Sure. You know, and, and so, you know, we've seen him be, you know, self-destructive in so many ways. But, you know, the kid had hardly any education. Sure. So, you know, his ability to rationalize, you know, was very poor because, you know, he was the opposite of, of an intellectual. Mm -hmm. You know, he just, that just wasn't part of his upbringing, you know. But he always had a soccer ball at his feet and his little house you know, that he grew up in, you know, it was surrounded by three walls on, on three sides and a fence on the other, and the ball couldn't get away. And, you know, so he had this perfect soccer box, which is something we've got lots of here in Kansas City, you know, to work in. So the ball didn't escape. He became a ball genius, you know, and soccer was a massive game, and so it took over his life. Unfortunately, that passion or obsession left no time for education. And probably the ethos was not educational. Mm -hmm. You know, in his family. You know, in fact, it wasn't from everything I've read. You know, but the soccer ethos was strong. Yeah. So, you know, he followed. You know, like we all do, the family path. You know, and the environment and the culture that he grew up in dictated who he was until his dying day, which is today. Yeah. Uh, you you mentioned the soccer box in training. That that's a good um, segue for me to to bring up. Uh, you know, COVID. Right. So COVID has been. Uh, impactful to all, all aspects and facets of life, uh, but for us as as soccer coaches and, and trainers of, uh, of of young soccer players, um, it's it's been impactful. Philippe, you said something to me the other day uh, that your kids were struggling to put the ball in the back of the net. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So because of COVID, I had one of my teams. There are a lot of parents that you know were. COVID conscious and, you know, due to family um, situations and stuff. And they asked me to start training outdoors through the, through the spirit. And, you know, I would rather have a practice with all my players than have a practice inside with half of my players. I think it's, it's, it's fair. Um, it wouldn't be fair to the other ones. So I said, okay, and I started coaching them outdoors. Well, the whole fall season. The whole fall season. Um, so that team um, is the best team I coach, and they learn the game a little more um, just by being outside, having more space, and because we don't have the walls, you know, the 1v1s are different, you know, they have to chase balls, and it's a lot of waste time after they miss a shot. So we didn't get as many repetitions in shooting as we did here with 
we usually do here. Um, we didn't have the box soccer courts to work on shooting. And just the 1v1s, the games, the 4v4, the scrimmages, it's just um, there's not enough repetition. So um, on the 2v2 side, combining and making runs, overlaps, and skill taking people on, all was great. Attacking third to put the ball in the back of the net, I was like, what is happening? So it took, it took what, 10, 12 games for you to notice? I mean, I started noticing, honestly, Andrew, from, from day one. And it was just like, it, it was more noticeable ti from time to time to time. You could see, like, because back before, they weren't as organized and as smart, in a sense. But, like, they just could score from anywhere. They would shoot from outside of the box. They would get a ball on the wing. Skill, I usually play inverted. So right foot is on the left, left foot is on the right. Skill, cut in, boom, outside of the box, go. Go, 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 go. Break away, 1v1 with the keeper, go. Cross in the box from a corner, first time finish, go. That's how my team was. Mm -hmm. We would win games eight to six. So COVID killed your team's ability to put the ball in the back of the net. Is exactly. We would yeah. win 1 0, 2 1, or even tie, lose. Games that we were like, we have 85% of possession. We can't score. And then we end up giving up something in the counter. So just, you know, we always talk about how the indoor facilities, you know, maximize the repetition and make them better in that technical side, which is the most important thing, especially in the early uh, years of their careers. Um, and just seeing how that literally can be translated just for a short period of a few months, not having that, for me was like, well, I already knew that, but like, it's just... I mean, it's so obvious. It's so clear. Like, it's it's way more than I ever expected. You know, you I, know what I mean. I had a similar situation on my team, uh, but I've got the older boys, and my older boys. Uh, you know, some of the families were totally okay with their kids coming to practice indoors here. You know, and even though we socially distanced, and you know, and but you know, we would use the facilities very intelligently, so you know, we weren't in each other's faces. So the older boys got that did come to practice got lots of repetition. You know, the, but there was, there was a number of them, four or five, that the families weren't comfortable letting them come to practice. You know, and I totally respect that. Sure. You know, so nobody you know, twisted their arm and tried to force them into practice, so we just live with it. So when we get back to playing games again, the ones that had been coming to practice on a regular basis were head and shoulders above the ones that weren't coming. You know, and uh, you know, I've lost a couple of players that weren't coming. You know, and I think that's a factor in that, that they felt that at a crucial age when, you know, they were going to showcase for college, they had just lost what made them special over that, that you know, four, five, six-month period. Yep. You know, yeah. So and it, it's interesting because there was all a period where, where we trained teams almost all the time outside. And then, and then Andy made the switch first into the, the training in our facilities that are all really tight with walls and repetitions abounding. I think we've done episodes on it um, and we all kind of followed and immediately I noticed and you noticed, all of us have noticed an improvement for our players and the ability to put the ball in the back of the net. Um, but then this becomes the new normal and we forget until we're forced because of COVID uh, and some of our players don't have access to it. We forget how great it is, but it's kind of nice to be, you know, smacked in the face like a cold kipper or whatever it is that you say all the time uh, that uh, what we do is, is, is really great for helping kids put the ball in the back of the net, which is the name of the game. So you butchered it. It's a slap in the face with a cold kipper. What is a kipper again? Is that a fish? Yeah, it's a it's a, a fish that that. Uh, I knew you English were weird, but I didn't realize you went around smacking each other in the face <laughs> with cold dead fish. <laughs> you didn't? No, I had all no the time idea. in England. Yeah, you know, yeah. you actually carry one in your pocket <laughs> just in case <laughs> you need to slap somebody with it. Who's being really stupid like yeah. you are right now? Interesting. But I interesting, forgot my kipper, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> moving on. All right, so so we're gonna talk about. Um, uh, how most coaches, in our experience, do it backward. Uh, that's kind of the theme for today. Um, and and Andy, you you've written uh, three books, um, but the first book, uh, Training Soccer Legends, uh, we've talked about quite a bit. And Chapter Sixteen, you title, "Most Coaches Destroy Creativity and Flair." Why is it that you say that? Why do you why, why do you feel as though most coaches destroy creativity and flair? Well. You know, I love, you know, one of my favorite ever quotes is a quote by, you know, the, the 
the right honourable Winston Churchill, <laughs> you know, who, you know, us, um, you know, very myopic, self-centred British think won the Second World War. Uh, and, uh, you know, Winston, who was also a, a, a prolific writer, in fact, I think he was, if not the most, but one of the most prolific writers in British history, he also was a very prolific painter. And so this is a quote that comes from, I guess, the painting side of his character. And he said this, I cannot pretend to feel impartial about colors. I rejoice with the brilliant ones and am genuinely sorry for the poor browns. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, doesn't that apply to, you know, the sport we love? Yeah, I mean, the journeyman that labors in the lower divisions, you know, to, to win a ball and then give it to somebody that can do something with it. You know, he's the poor brown. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's really very, very sad. And, and you know, and I, you know, I wrote this is most players are a shade of brown because most coaches train them not to be neon. You know, so coaches may as well hand out a, a camouflage straitjacket to their players and say, you know, you're going to do things that, are, you know, purely not to get noticed, but, you know, you're just going to fit into the machine and you're just going to be that cog, you know, that nobody really recognizes having any importance, you know. And, you know, uh, and I used to say this when I was coaching you because my upbringing in England, you know, it got into my head so badly that even when I was coaching you, I remember saying um, high, wide and long. Mm -hmm. All the time. Under pressure at the back, you know, clear it. High, wide, and long. Well, you know, what are some of the when other things? When in doubt, kick it out. When in doubt, kick it out. What are some <laughs> of the other things that, you know, the cliches that, that bad coaches say, don't try anything risky. Play the way you're facing. Clear it. Clear it. Clear it, you idiot. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, there's this panic that, that seeps into a coach's mentality when the ball gets closer to your goal. The, the one that drives me the most crazy is to play the way you face it, right? Play the way you face, play the way you face. And I, and like, I remember hearing that in college and at first saying, okay, I can try this. And then it didn't take me but half of a session to get into it and realize, wait, that's really easy to defend. The defender knows exactly where I'm playing it because they just look at my body and there's zero deception to it. Yeah, yeah. Imagine Cesar Menotti saying to young Diego, play the way you're facing, Diego. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> He'd get the middle finger pretty quick, wouldn't yeah. he? You know? <laughs> uh, but so, but, so you, I, I assume you still feel that way, that, 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 that coaches destroy creativity and flair. And is it, it, why do you think that is? Do you think it's just because they're afraid to lose? Or is it, is it deeper and, and wider than that? Yeah, it's a fear of losing. I think that's a big factor. You know? And, and uh, there's this great quote from Mary Oliver, who's, who's a poet. And, and she says, uh, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Well, I'm just going to get the ball and I'm just going to pass it 10 yards to somebody else that could do something creative with it. I mean, really? Is that what we want to train our kids to do? Yeah. You know, with this wild and precious life that we only get one shot at. You know, the one thing about Diego Maradona, yes, he died today, but wow, did he ever live? Mm. Yes, he lived things to the max. If he wasn't getting into a fight, he was making love to some woman or, you know, or, you know, scoring an incredible goal from his own half in the World Cup. Or, you know, I mean, he was well known for being, you know, out there on the ragged edge of neon. He certainly wasn't a poor brown. <laughs> Uh, so as we talk about like kind of that, the, the, the way coaches destroy creativity and flair, like I oftentimes think about some of the teams that we played growing up from St. Louis and w w it was difficult to get the ball off of them, but everything was sideways and backwards. Everything was the way they, they faced. It was predictable. Um, uh, it was very disciplined too much. So, um, um, and it created a really rote finite way that the game was played. Um, and I feel like that's, that was the norm growing up. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that it's strayed too far from it now. You'll see some kids doing some tricky things on the ball from other clubs every once in a while, but they're always playing out wide. They're always in the attacking third. 
They're never in the middle third or the defensive third, and it's it's safety first. I, I will say this, that you're not being quite fair to a guy called Tommy Howe, who started the Scott Gallagher Club in St. Louis because his teams did play with a lot of skill. So, you know, they were the one exception, you know, in the St. Louis metro area that we had some great battles, you know, and, you know, I always used to feel that they were kind of a sister club philosoph philosophically yeah. out of St. Louis. So uh, Perhaps you were older at, at the time than I was, but I just remember always feeling Did you have to go there? Did you have to use the age thing? <laughs> you know, I'm already sensitive enough about well, it. Well, I'm old enough that the youth soccer club I most r remember playing in St. Louis was named Bush after beer, and that wouldn't be appropriate anymore. Um, <laughs> but, man, it was just sideways and backwards, and they had some athletes up front. And, like, it wasn't a creative go for it uh, risk oriented style yeah, bush bush out. wasn't creative yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, it was definitely you know recruit the fastest strongest biggest athletes and play to win yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so they would never recruit maradona who was what five two maybe <laughs> super tiny and stuff uh, five five yeah i mean yeah he's only a little guy yeah you know, yeah, yeah, yeah he was probably about five foot five wide as well though i mean the guy was <laughs> i mean he was built like a tank oh he was a pit prop yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No Ab absolutely it, it, Felipe, growing up, obviously Brazil has has been, um, and we we talked about it before, has uh, they're creative through and through, right? Um, um, with with very hold few on, I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, the creative through and through. Felipe, read this. This is this is where it says Pele. It's a great segue into this. You know where it says Pele. It's a quote from from Pele. Um, Football is like a religion to me. I worship the ball and I treat it like a god. Too many players think of a football as something to kick. They should be taught to caress it and treat it like a precious gem. Uh, didn't that sound better in a Brazilian accent than <laughs> a working class English accent? Uh, is that what it's like? Yeah, I mean, again, I've talked about this a lot here. Um, but a Brazilian kid usually don't get coached until a certain age when they reach like an academy age and, you know, um, that 12, 13 uh, years old period. So we grow up with nobody telling us what to do. It's a lot of pickup games. You don't have a coach giving you any instruction, any feedback or anything, you know. And in Brazil, we actually have a say that uh, coaches don't win games. They can certainly lose it. And I think that we can uh, translate that also to the development part. Um, Wait, say that again. The saying in Brazil is coaches don't win games, but they can certainly lose it. Yeah. yeah we definitely don't have that saying in the United States. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, – We're overcoached. It's this X's and O attitude. Well, there's, there's a lot of things the you don't have in the United States that us English and Brazilians do have. Like a, world, a few <laughs> World Cups? <laughs> We've got four. <laughs> We True. got one. England's got one. There you go. I got five. <laughs> <laughs> probably uh, wouldn't have one if it wasn't for a terrible referee. Call. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, so in Brazil, like this term, play the way you s you face. Is that? I I mean I, I not, again I don't he I didn't hear that growing up because I, I I wasn't coached, you know. And again, it's with we also say like the coach's job is get the 11 best players and put them on the pitch and they'll figure yeah, out because they're good, you know? Yeah. And what's changing now is that Brazil is trying to copy Europe and make it too tactical and it's killing our creativity. Like, legit, I was talking to Andy before. Bef uh, I watched Brazil and Venezuela and Neymar didn't play. was 1-0. So boring. So boring. No risk taken. Even like Firmino, Richarlison, the guys that play in the EPL and Champions League, I just... You know, nothing really, really special. When Neymar gets there, he might get a t play a terrible game, but he's always on the ball. He's always trying something, you know. And we 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 don't have that anymore, you know. And hey, at least you had it at one time. Imagine being English. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> decades and decades of of English coaches leaving out the most creative and talented players, you know, in the whole of Britain, you know. And th there were some great ones, but they just didn't have the courage to include them. You know, and it's happening again today. I mean, you know, <laughs> Gareth Southgate, Southgate left out Jack Grealish until only recently. Mm -hmm. But when he plays, he's a revelation. He's the only player in the English team that really looks capable of unlocking the defense against anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and yet, you know, he, you know he, there's, there's virtually been a national outcry to include him. 
just to get Southgate to put him in the team. Yeah. How sad is that? Yeah. It, it's an ethos. It's British an ethos. people are supposed to be tough and hardworking and blue collar and you know all, all the um, mistakenly positive ways of saying you know ignorant fist fighters. You know, well, <laughs> can we not be you know a little bit more intelligent and creative and put these wizards in and you know and if we're gonna lose, which we do anyway. We might as well lose beautifully, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think the biggest problem that we have is, again, we always talk about coaches having their ego and wanting to win. And I think it, it, it's not just that. It's like if you think about like a professional coach, Guardiola at Man City. I mean, he has the budget. He has the scouting reports and everything. He watched soccer. He'll say, I want that player because that player is phenomenal. He will fit in. He doesn't have to develop that player. Youth coaches, they kind of think the same way. Like, they don't want to spend the time developing that player. But if they find that player at trials that is coming to their team, oh, yeah, come, you know, I'll give you a scholarship, whatever, you know, you'll be on my team and tell the other kids, like, play him the ball, play him the ball, play him the ball, play him the ball, because they want to win. But they're not taking the time to develop that player. And sometimes they won't, they will kill that player because, you know, even in games, they'll pass him the ball and letting him do anything. But the whole practice situation will be two touch, play the way you face, blah, 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 blah. And then they expect a lot from that player, you know? So why not take the time and let's develop that player. Let's create that player. There are some kids that are like that naturally or because they have a dad or a mom that works with them, you know, and they do a lot of extra work at home in their skills and in their mentality as well. But like... I don't think the coaches want to take the time. They just want to take the shortcuts and win. Yeah, I think I think you're right there. But I, I also it, it makes me think of um, develop um, develop. Sometimes I think coaches, especially here in the United States, think that that's an active job for them. Like they need to be very active in the development of a player. So uh, so I need this the player to learn how to receive the ball on the on the half turn this way and then I need to learn them to learn how to receive the ball on the half turn this way and then I need them to learn uh, that that as a right midfielder these are the spaces that they can occupy in an attack and these are the spaces they should occupy in a defense. And I think that's that's wrong and you when you talk about Brazil often you talk about I wasn't really coached and it's the environment that is the teacher. And I don't know if you've had this feeling before um, but it's been a revelation for me lately um, because I've had several new coaches coming to my training sessions to see what my sessions are like, probably five or six. Um, and and I, we get into the session and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my typical session um, and I can feel this like gut instinct in me to like go over and explain why it's really chaotic and go over like not in a way that like isn't this beautiful but oh ah, just give it time and like ah, the kids eventually figure out this one touch two touch fake a move within two system when we play 1v1s or 2v2s or whatever it might be and 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 I have to remind myself that it's not supposed to be super organized and professional looking it's supposed to be intuitively chaotic um, and and one where kids struggle a lot and one where there is constant failure and I think coaches oftentimes especially when they're putting on a session for people to watch they want all the touches to be perfect they want all the passes to be crisp they want the entire session to be you know ticky taka stuff and and it, it if we're going to be active uh, I think a coach's role is almost passive in development as in what we do create an environment and then just get out of the way and cheer them on and let the environment do the teaching. And I know I'm criticized. We're criticized by other coaches like, oh, that's just the easy way to coach. You don't have to do any work. Well, no, it's a lot of work, but you're right. I shouldn't be doing the work. The kids should be. And I should be creating the, the competitive cauldron and giving them the, 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 the skillful enthusiasm to go for it and, and, and to be learners and developers of the game. Does that make sense at all? A hundred percent. I couldn't help but think while you were talking there. Uh, you know, I I binge watched with my daughter last week the the Queen's Gambit, the uh, the Netflix uh, chess. Uh, my series. wife brought it up this morning that we should watch it. Is it good? Yeah, fantastic. Okay. Yeah. And but you know while I'm watching it, you know, and and this is how sick I am. <laughs> uh, you know, I relate everything to soccer. You know, so I'm watching this fantastic you know series. And, you know, and I'm thinking about the, you know, the, the game of chess, which I played a lot as a kid, and it's a great, great game. But most coaches 
treat the game of soccer like a game of chess. You know, they have their bishop who moves diagonally, you know, in a straight line. They have their rook who moves straight up and back or side to side in a straight line. You know, and they have their pawns who, you know, they do a good defensive job, especially when you castle and you want to protect, you know, your, your king. You know, but, you know, the pawns are very limited, maximum, you know, two squares at once in a straight line and only go diagonally to take. And so, you know, and, and I'm looking at this board and yes, it's a big tactical picture. Well, coaches look at the game of soccer as a tactical picture. And here's the difference. You know, we in the Legends Club, we create a board full of queens. Can move in any direction, have got immense power, you know, and can do the most amazing things. You know, our pieces are so much more valuable than the pieces that other coaches put on the field eventually because we train them to be queens. We train them to be this wonderful, versatile, creative piece that can win the game virtually on their own and that you want more of. You know, so when you move your pawn all the way to the other end of the board and you get another queen, you know, because you've decimated the opponent's defense to that degree, you know, you're getting the most powerful piece on the field. Well, I think it's our job as coaches to train the queens, not to train the, the poor pawns. You know, they are the poor browns that Winston Churchill spoke about. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, and that's where I disagree that, yes, chess is a game of tactics, and you include all these pieces working together to create a tactical format that allows you to win. The problem is youth coaches see that as their role and responsibility, and it's not. Their role and responsibility is to fill the field with queens. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. So yeah. think about one thing. If, if you're playing soccer, you're not coached, you don't have any knowledge in the game, but you know how to play. Well, you're playing target nine, right? You have a defender on your back. You receive a pass, and the defender anticipates, and steals the ball. Then the next ball that comes, the defender anticipates and wins the ball. On the third one, before the ball go goes to you, you're going to look to see. So, like, it's a natural thing that the kid will get. You don't have to spend a drill teaching them to look or check over their shoulders because they will see that every time they're getting that ball here and they're just waiting for the ball and they're not aware of their surroundings, they'll lose the ball. So they will already think of how can I adjust this? Maybe it is anticipating a little more, checking their shoulder, turning their hip. So they'll figure it out. And that's how development works in Brazil. And that's how we kind of do. We don't have to set up a drill. Okay, I'm pass you a flat ball. You got to check your shoulder before, you know, and and receive that ball. You don't have to do that. They will figure it out on their own. Yeah. So uh, can, I, can I... Uh, describe my training as a coach. Carry on, yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, my, my training as a coach, it first started, you know, self-trained where, you know, I, I started buying FA Insight, which was the coaching magazine uh, you know, back in the 70s when I started coaching at age 16. And, uh, and, and then, you know, I went to, you know, phys ed school, took a sports science degree, and I took my Welsh FA prelim badge, and, and I took... Intermediate badge for the Welsh FA came to the States, took a B license with the USSF, uh, took an A license, took an advanced national diploma with uh, uh, what was at the time the National Soccer Coaches Association of America. And every one of these coaching courses, they trained us to focus on passing as the core skill and, you know, and, and tactics. You know, and there was almost nothing on teaching deceptive dribbling moves, almost nothing. Maybe there was a little something, well, this is a move that you could teach your players, but you know, it, it wasn't included in the evaluation. You know, it was all teamwork, passing, tactics, and, and those skills. There, there was a fair amount of shooting, but almost no deceptive dribbling. You know, and um, training passing before training deceptive dribbling, you know, I, I wrote this down this morning before I came, it just came out of my head, um, is like training a team of amputees how to walk properly without first getting them artificial legs. <laughs> <laughs> it makes no sense. It just can't work. 
No, it, it can't because unless you've got the ability to touch it away from pressure before you pass, to have that touch, that deception, and then if there's no pass available, which if we just won the ball, you know, we've just been marking them. So we're probably right by our opponents at least for a couple of seconds. And so we need to be able to do something creative, de deceptive, so that we can actually buy the time and space for our players to get open, mm -hmm. but also to make the pass. So, you know, we, we, we have got to start training our players to be ball wizards, mm -hmm. you know, and Brazil's got to get back to, to, you know, allowing the street culture to thrive again, you know, so that they can continue to be world dominant, you know, because obviously they're sliding on the world stage, you know, and, you know, one of the most impressive stats, you know, from a while ago that I saw was the fact that Brazil had thousands more professional players across the world than any other country, mm -hmm. you know, because of the creative way in which the society, you know, encourages players to play. Well, that's starting to slide, it's diminishing because, you know, coaches are thinking sports science these days and thinking tactical ways to win games. So the Brazilian advantage is rapidly disappearing as you described with Venezuela, the game against Venezuela. But you mentioned coaches are thinking sports science these days, and that's absolutely the case. Um, uh, but it's ignoring science, right? Like if you look at the, the, the development of, of children, they first start out in a totally dependent stage. Babies can't do anything for themselves. They need to be fed. They need to have their diaper changed. They need all of that. They, they need to be taken care of entirely by their parents. And then they transition into an entire independent stage, right? That, that twos, that threes, that fours. Kids want to do everything for themselves. They don't want help. They don't want any um, any advice. They don't want any 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 help at all along that. They want to do it, and they don't even play well with others, right? They're entirely, from a cognitive perspective, from a social, emotional, developmental perspective, they're entirely um, self-absorbed. And so everything that they do when they play with toys, they play by themselves. They don't play with anybody else. And it's only when they've come through this independent stage entirely where they can then have interdependence, when they then can play pretend with friends, friends where they can role play and they can play games that have rules and they can work together um, to, to, to accomplish this. And, and if we're going to be serious about developing soccer teams, we've got to follow a, a similar approach and we've got to um, start out with independence where the kids can learn to become entirely independent and not dependent on anybody else. They can keep the ball until it's the time, until they want to pass, which on the front end is going to be way past the time when they should have passed, right? But eventually, if they're truly an independent soccer player, they can become an interdependent soccer player where they can work with somebody else to break down a team. And, and it's that scientific progress, that scientific progression, um, that, that I think we do a really good job in our club um, training kids, uh, independent players for a really long time before they ever become inter interdependent. And the goal is that not to happen until they're 18, 19. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it, passing based programs, you know, and, and I made a note coming out here, are mostly about conformity instead of standing out and celebrating one's uniqueness. And compare the, the three R's you know, the way they used to be taught, you know, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Andy, writing is spelled with a W. Yeah, yeah, when you said three R's, I <laughs> thought Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Rivaldo. I swear. <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. Andy, when yeah, you sit over your notes and it yeah. said that, I could not stop laughing. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Andrew, you're showing your ignorance <laughs> because, you know, they are commonly known as the three R's phonetically. They are. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in, in my, I think. I'm just curious, you know, uh, we've can we see you get your other foot in your mouth? Because <laughs> no, no. Uh, I'd love to see that. We've Where's the fish? We've Where's the fish? We've progressed to such a, a degree that people born in 1983 didn't learn it that way. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but I did. Okay. You know, and, and these were commonly known as the three R's because phonetically they're pronounced like an R. And did they write it with stone and uh, hammer, chisel? <laughs> weren't that advanced in those days when <laughs> I was younger. It, you know, those things hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> Wheels were still squares, right? Yeah. <laughs> Flintstones, right. Um, but, you know, but, you know, what, Go what, on. What we've got here is we've got um, uh, you know, whole classes back in the 60s, of which I was part of, you know, and, and chanting the alphabet. <laughs> Seriously. 
chanting our multiplication tables. I was part of this, you know, systemic, uh, in a systemically abhorrent educational mm -hmm. system, you know, and and, uh, and and that was what everybody thought was the way to get kids to learn how to read and write, you know, mm -hmm. and, and to be able to do their multiplication tables, you know, and so, you know, you just chanted and chanted and chanted until, you know, those things stuck. And I, I'm not taking a piss here. It would make sense that your soccer education as a kid was as, as archaic as it was, it, it was pervasive throughout the entire culture from an education perspective. The, the, you know, the culture was that we won the world wars because, you know, we were prepared to sacrifice our lives instead of do something more intelligently and try and win the, you know, the, yeah. you know with creativity and tactics. You know, it's, you know th that's a very British mentality, unfortunately. Sure. You know, it, it, we're not the most creative people. Uh, as a nation, now don't get me wrong, we've had some incredibly creative people come out of our country, um, but they tended to be brought up in different ways. Like Winston Churchill was brought up as a kid, you know, in Blenheim Palace, Oxfordshire, painting, writing, you know, and he was encouraged to really be an intellectual by, by his parents and by the aristocratic system, you know, where you had to be bred to um, follow on in uh, supporting the empire, mm -hmm. you know, and you had to be a leader. But soldiers were just cannon fodder, you yeah. know, and, and that's, we treat our kids like they're cannon fodder in the game of soccer. You know, we're there to win. We're not there to create a better world. We're not there to create a better game. We're not there to entertain. You know, we are just there to win in most of our youth premier, you know, soccer philosophies, sure. you know, and approaches to the game. And, and it, it, it's really sad. And in education, Montessori education is the way to go, where they create experimental rooms and the kids can um, avail themselves of whatever it is that they're really interested in. And then the teacher comes around and says, have you thought about this this way or this way? And, you know, so think about, you know, doing this with this, you know. And the teachers get this, this experience in teaching Montessori education where they really, really enhance the creativity mm -hmm. of the individual and that ability to get a head start in life. Increases curiosity, right? And the kids', the kids mode of education is much more intrinsically motivated. It's not extrinsically motivated. Right, right. Yep. And, and in the States here, I noticed this when we came over. You know, I thought we had an, an interesting coaching environment, but it, coaching wasn't that, that big in England you know, when I was growing up. And I come to America... And it's so coach-centric. Mm -hmm. A coach is a mini-god compared to the way I was brought up in England. You know? and, you know, and so what the coaches say goes in America like nowhere else. Coaches are worshipped mm -hmm. you know, in a way that, uh, that, that you know, college coaches are paid millions over here. Yeah. College coaches volunteer in, in Britain. We don't have college sports in Brazil. But, but pretty much but <laughs> it's but you, you've really i think made your point because then coaches because even at the youth level parents look up to the coach so much and tell the kids not to question the coach and whatever coach says you do and a, and a great trait of being a good member of the team if the coach says to do x you do x and that includes sitting on the bench or whatever it takes and so coaches develop these complexes where I can do no wrong. My job is almost godlike in terms of to tell you what to do and how to do it so that the team can be successful. And don't question me because I'm the coach. And, and that, that is entirely uh, and antithetical to true education and developmental theories. And, and this is, I wrote this earlier on today before I came out here. Uh, in far too many instances, coaches have become a branch Davidian-like cult where wacko tactical schemes are taught instead of training creative individual inspiration and execution. We got a real problem. Yep. You know, and, and there are whole comp companies making a fortune out of diagrams, you know, that they sell a membership to on the internet of X's and O's, you know, which are supposed to represent players moving in the perfect patterns. Mm -hmm. And coaches take those to practice and teach players how to move in those patterns. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. The players are crap with the ball. Mm -hmm. So when they move in those patterns, they can't do a bloody thing with the most important thing, which is the round thing. 
uh, I won't name any names, but there was a there's a local upstart academy that's just appeared here in Kansas City, and and I'm Facebook friends with a family who has a, 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 a young daughter who used to play for the Legends Club and now plays in this academy, and they shared a video of a recent indoor game where. Um, the pattern played out perfectly. The ball went to the keeper. It was like 77 played out wide to the right sided defender who played it into the middle, who played it out wide to the right sided midfielder, who played it into the middle, who switched it to the left sided player who then crossed it in and the number nine put it in the back of the net. And they shared the video just uh, so happy to see that this pattern played out. It was the most unathletic, poor technique passing pattern that I'd ever seen ever seen the kids touch on the ball was was terrible any under any type of increased pressure it would have failed but they were so proud that the pattern had manifested itself in a game um and they'd come off with a goal and and the coach you could see was patting himself on the back and the 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 focus becomes entirely on hey my x's and o's in practice worked in the game great job guys way to be soldiers foot soldiers in my scheme um, and 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 it, and it 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 failed the 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 eye test in terms of what does it do for kids long term in terms of being successful, um, independent and eventually interdependent soccer players if that makes sense. And and uh, the thought just occurred to me while you're talking, uh, but this is not the first time I've had this thought. Obviously, tactics are never common from one coach to another. It's the one thing that is absolutely not going to happen is, you know, because there's thousands of tactical schemes to win games, mm -hmm. you know, and tactics within tactical schemes, you know, to win, you know, individual matchups, two on two matchups, etc. So to focus on tactics at the youth level is to guarantee failure at the next level, because if while you're focusing on tactics, you're not developing the ball wizard, you're not developing the artist, you're not developing that player that has the technical ability to adjust to any tactical system and help their team win a game, mm -hmm. you know? And, and that's sacrilege. You, you know, while you're focusing on tactics and the tactics of passing, you're actually destroying the individual's ability to be truly creative, truly independent, you know, that's Stephen Coveyism. You know, first you have to be independent you know, if you're eventually going to be part of an effective team, you know, you're destroying that when you focus on tactics. And that's what the Brazilians have gotten right, is, you know, they focused on the creativity, you know, and because they focused on the creativity as a cultural thing, as an environmental thing, they could adapt to the coaches and still bring out enough of that individuality and that creativity to win five World Cups. I mean, imagine if, if from a from a, a cultural perspective among Amer American soccer coaches, um, how much further along would be if the same enthusiasm and and, and investment was made um, to where our culture focused on culture and environment for the teams and the kids that we coached, as opposed to the the X's and O's or the tactical foundation um, that that we gave our kids. I, I just I like. If we focused on culture and environment, and even if it's not even the exact same way we would establish a culture and environment, but if our focus was entirely on that and not in an X and O's perspective where we would be, I think it's so much further. That's what has given Brazil its its ability for so long, and, and many other cultures too, but Brazil being the leading leading light in that direction. Um, Andy, in, in I think it was chapter 18 of your book, um, uh, you, you, you laid something out that was, I thought, I thought was... I don't, uh, one of your better writing, uh, pieces of writing, small excerpt. So it was about average, <laughs> but it, it laid out that coaches oftentimes teach players to pass at the wrong time. And I remember being in sessions through ODP and, and high school and state or in, and college where it, it was, as soon as you win the ball, quickly find a teammate to retain possession. It was, was the message. And we did drill after drill after drill centered around as soon as you won the ball, quickly finding a teammate. And what, what you pointed out in this chapter was that the second you win the ball is actually 
most often the worst time to get rid of the ball because as soon as you win the ball, all of your teammates, if they're doing half a decent job defensively, are man-marking or tight with with uh, the opposition. And so at the moment you win the ball, if you were to play it to them, they're going to be under pressure immediately. And so coaches need to do a good job of teaching players to be independent so that the second they win the ball, they can be creative and deceptive enough to hold on to it for as long as it takes for their teammates to open up. And that could be a couple seconds or it could be many seconds before they're able to create space in such a way that it'd be good for you to, to, um, to, to retain possession. And it took me back to some of those college days because naturally playing in, in university, I, I, I held onto the ball most than most of my teammates. And if any of my college teammates are listening to that, they, they would chuckle because I always held on the ball a little bit longer than they did. But back to those quick transition style drills that we did, I, always was deceptive as soon as I won the ball, right? And and just to create a bit of a space to switch the point of attack or to go in another direction just to give my teammates enough time to keep the ball. And there were guys on my team that were a heck of defenders, but they were terrible at retaining possession afterward because they couldn't hold on to the ball or be deceptive to save their life. I remember 2013, I read an article about Jurgen Klopp when he was coaching for Borussia Dortmund. Uh, that's how he came to Liverpool afterwards. He made to the semifinals in the Champions League with Borussia Dortmund, which at the time wasn't a big team on that uh, scenario of Champions League. Um, and his philosophy was 100%. As soon as we lose the ball, we got to win it back within five seconds, exactly because of what you described. The other team just won the ball. They're not organized. They don't have teammates open. So as soon as we lose it, boom, we go right back at them and we win it back and that's how that fast transition killed opponents now when they got to play Barcelona Real Madrid when they had the special players then it's harder because of exactly that they have the players that had the ability to break that initial pressure until they find a teammate open and it's exactly what you said it's really easy to win the ball back right after you lose it if the guy who wins the ball is just looking for a pass and he will probably panic because he doesn't see a good pass option right away. So if, if the guy on the ball is entirely dependent, read baby like and unable to create for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and your point about, uh, I, in fact, I just made a note, the same thing that you said, um, you know, Barcelona, you know, with Xavi, with Iniesta, with Ronaldinho, with Leo Messi, they could play that high pressure, win the ball back in five seconds game, but other teams couldn't do the same to those guys because they were just too skillful, talented, able to wriggle out of pressure. So when the pressure came, they were able to break the pressure and actually uh, they got the benefit of not letting the other team out of their defensive third because the other team didn't have the ability to wriggle out of pressure. So Barcelona were forever winning the ball back on the edge of the attack in third that's a nightmare. If you've got Xavi and Iniesta and Ronaldinho and Leo Messi coming down your throat on your own attack in third, after your players have been trying to get open, so you're now in a terrible defensive position and shape, you know, and Barcelona scored goal after goal after goal, not just because they put people under pressure, but because they had the players who could then leverage the new possession into a goal. Makes sense. I, I'm 100%. glad you brought up Barcelona because people talk about that era of Barcelona with Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, all of them, and the tiki taka style. And like they would share, you know, sped up versions of them playing one and two touch passing for 30 passes. And, and so that's what we need to do is one and two touch passing. Those guys were magicians with the ball at their feet. And when they got in a tight space, they were good enough and deceptive enough on the dribble to determine do I want to pass it here or do I want to dribble? And, and or even just for a half a second to create a bit of space before I found that, that pass. They were truly independent and interdependent. I remember when, when uh, during COVID, I was looking highlights and I sent both of you a highlight from Sergio Busquets saying, hey guys, look at this. Yeah, I do remember because that. Because everybody has a perception. Oh, Busquets plays not even two touch, one touch, half touch. Yeah. You know, he just gets rid of the ball so fast. And the highlight reel, it's him. Skill after skill after skill after skill. Not like scissors and stuff, but like L turns, craft turn, craft turn, step overs, like just quick things to create that create space, space and to hold the ball yeah. for a little bit 
to find something. Yep. And like we don't have that perception, you know, because we don't watch those clips. We watch only, you know, the whole game and we don't pay clo close attention. We say, oh, Busquets, yeah, just one touch to touch. No, quite the opposite. He does that when it's the right time to do that. But when he's under pressure, he has that ability. And that's what makes him a great player. He's a, truly an independent player that can work with teammates to, to break them down. Find that clip and share it on our socials because that, that, was, that was a, um, a memorable moment for me when you sent that through because I just always made the assumption that Busquets was a get-it-and-give-it guy, and, mm -hmm. and he's obviously not. Well, it, we as, 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 as a, a, you know, humans, we make the mistake of focusing on what happens most yeah. instead of focusing on the highlight the thing that actually breaks the line, the things that creates the goal-scoring opportunity. Yeah. And it, it's very, very rare that a team wins a World Cup just by passing. You know, it, Going you know, sideways and backwards. Yeah, it's, you know, it's happened on occasion with West Germany because they're so disciplined yeah. you know, that they, they would win a World Cup you know, by, you know, just passing the ball around and, and f you know, sending a crossover and attacking it and banging it into the back of the net, you know. And, but most of the World Cups have been won by highlight plays where somebody is deceptive dribbling, beating a player and breaking a line. And, and, but we don't, we don't recognize that because we are so in the mode of seeing what happens most that we don't reckon what actually breaks a line and wins a game. And... The Barcelona team is a great example because, you know, Busquets, Xavi, Iniesta, Ronaldinho, Leo Messi, they could all break a line and win a game. So they had so many weapons. And this is like Venezuela, Brazil. Without Neymar in the team, Brazil was without any weapons that could break the line. You know, but you go back to the 1970 World Cup. And, and they had Carlos Alberto, they had Pelé, they had Rivellino, they had Jairzinho, they had all these great players, Tostao, you know, and these players could break the line left, right, and center. Sooner or later, they were going to break the line and score one, two, three, four goals in a game. You know, and a lot of games weren't even close because they had so much individual brilliance within this team framework. You know, and the greatest team ever to win a World Cup, you know, in 1982. You know, with Socrates, with Zico, and all the other brilliant players on that team, you know, it, it was possibly the best Brazilian team ever, but they just got unlucky on the day, you know, and, and lost a game in overtime, you know. And so that's what we have to recognize is that our job as educators is, is not to train the, the cold sack carrier. <laughs> you know, we, we have to train the artists, and it's that quality of art. You know, we, we, you talked a little bit earlier on about science, and the game has gone to science, but it's lost the Brazilian quality of art. You know, and art is what makes uh, life entertaining, what makes it truly enthralling. You know, it's not the science, a lot of that is dry. It's the art that really makes life wonderful. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Yeah. So. Well, um, as we wrap up this, Andy, is there anything that, that you had made a note before you came over that you, that you want to share related to um, uh, you know, creativity and art and, and there not being enough of it in, in the coaching ranks across the United States? I, I was just looking at my notes here, and I've, I think I've really focused on uh, you know, what I came to focus on. But the, the one last thing I'd like to emphasize is this whole Stephen Covey concept of you know, dependence precedes independence and you cannot in any way be fully interdependent which means play as a team unless you've conquered you know th that independence phase to a significant degree and that's something that you have to continue to conquer all the way through and if, if you look at the training regimens of of Leo Messi of Cristiano Ronaldo as Latan Ibrahimovic they're constantly working on their technical abilities, even at the ripe old age, in Zlatan's case, of 39, and he's still scoring unbelievable goals. The technical abilities outside of just receiving and passing. Because oh, oh you, know, yeah. it, it, you know, look up Zlatan Ibrahimovic and look at a highlight tape. I mean, you know, you see volleys mm -hmm. at, at three feet above head height. You know, because he's literally doing this unbelievable thing with his legs, you know, and, you know, he practices that. You know, he actually practiced martial arts to learn that capability in the first place. 
But then he practices that stuff, you know, in addition to the regular training he does so that he can get these unbelievably weird goals. Mm -hmm. The goal he scored against England, the overhead kick, you know, look that up. England versus Sweden, overhead kick. It's a couple of years ago. Zlatan, yeah. 10 years ago. I think he scored you know, a volley on that game as well. Before that, <laughs> what hasn't he scored? He, he scored four goals against that game. Yeah, he, the the guy is a beast, and he's thirty nine years of age, you know. And I know he's cocky, but you know he backs it up with action, you know. And AC Milan are top as we speak, top of the Serie A, you know. And Zlatan is leading the leading the the yep. race, and he's thirty nine years of age, you know, and had a couple of weeks out with COVID. It's amazing to see what an ex MLS player can do. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great way to and end the episode. And, and, and that having been said, you know, the USA has got some nice young players now. <laughs> with, you know, I, I I like the creativity I'm seeing from Gio Reyna. You know, and obviously Virginia Dest. Yeah, and Dest, and yep. you know, there's some nice young players coming through, uh, despite the fact that we're not training players as creatively as we should. My, my golly gosh, if if every coach nationwide abandoned their scientific passing approach to train the way that we train players, we would have an abundance of riches, you know, yeah. that, you know, would make us with our population and the way that soccer has grown would make us the number one country in the world for soccer. I don't, not sure about that. We would take <laughs> over Brazilians crown because they're going backwards and we could go forwards and yeah. we could make this happen. And I've been beating this drum with England, you know, and England still doesn't get it, you know, and, and that's coming from somebody that has visited upwards of 50, 60 academies in Britain and studied their training methods. You know, so, you know, it's, it's amazing what we're missing, you know, in, in, in the way that we're conditioned. We are all conditioned by our culture and environment to be a certain way. Religion is the best example. You don't find many Christians from Mecca, you know, but you don't want find many Muslims from, you know, uh, you know, rural, small-town America. Yeah. You know, it's, we're conditioned by our environment to believe in different gods. So why wouldn't be, we be conditioned to believe in different ways of training soccer players? You know, it doesn't make any sense. Well, um, we, we mentioned in his first book, Training Soccer Legends. If you're listening and you don't have a copy, send us a, a note on social media or an email, and uh, we'll get it to you. We'd love to, to share it. Um, and uh, with that said, thanks for uh, listening. Hopefully we'll get back to some type of regular recording, not every six months like it's been the last six months. So. That would be nice, wouldn't yep. it? Take care, guys. See you. See you. Bye-bye.